What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We've got a brand new bunch of urban legends for you, so buckle up. There's a sharp turn up ahead. Our first urban legend, that Jan Barry of Jan and Dean had a near-fatal accident on the same road that they had sung about earlier in their hit, Dead Man's Curve. That would be a pretty weird and downright scary coincidence, would it not? Back in the 60s, when the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean were turning out surfing and car racing hits like Jiffy Pop, there were more than a few dangerous curves. But one of the baddest is the corner of Sunset Boulevard near the Bel Air Estates, just north of UCLA's Drake Stadium. It's all downhill if you're headed east, and when you get to the bottom, you find you need to bank sharply to the left or crash into a wall of trees. The most renowned victim of Los Angeles's infamous curve was Mel Blanc, Famous is the voice of Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, and hundreds of other cartoon characters. In January 1961, Blank was driving his sports car eastbound on Sunset Boulevard one evening around 9.30 p.m., and at Dead Man's Curve, he collided head-on with another car. Blank was pried from the wreckage unconscious, having suffered head injuries, a broken pelvis, and two broken legs. He barely escaped death and spent weeks in a coma. Just a few days after Blank's accident, Los Angeles Board of Public Works approved making changes to the banking of that portion of Sunset Boulevard to lessen the danger posed by the downhill curve, a city engineer testifying that it had been the scene of 26 accidents, three of them fatal, in just a two-year stretch. A few years later, in the summer of 1963, the singing duo of Jan and Dean, with help from the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson, topped the charts with Surf City, and at the end of the year, they scored another top ten hit, with Drag City. Looking to follow up their success with another single based on the familiar drag racing theme, Janberry teamed up with Roger Christian, a disc jockey turned songwriter who had co-written similarly themed Beach Boys car songs, such as Little Deuce Coop. Christian came up with the idea for writing a song about a dead man's curve and structuring it as a narrative of a drag race. Janberry said later, I thought someone ought to write a song about dead man's curve, so I said, well, we ought to make it into a race, because Jan and I were really into racing. Every Saturday night we'd meet and go to Sunset and Vine, and we'd race. I had a Jaguar XKE, and Jan had a Stingray, the same cars that are in the song. Jan Barry and Roger Christian turned their real-life experiences, Barry figured he raced several hundred times on Sunset, into lyrics about a drag race and its tragic aftermath, and Jan and Dean scored another top-ten hit with their version of Dead Man's Curve, which reached number eight on the Billboard chart 
in April of 1964. The words go like this. I was cruising in my stingray late one night when an XKE pulled up on the right and rolled down the window of his shiny new jag and challenged me then and there to a drag. I said, you're on, buddy. My mill's running fine. Let's come off the line now at Sunset and Vine. But I'll go you one better if you've got the nerve. Let's race all the way to Dead Man's Curve. And then the chorus goes, Dead Man's Curve, it's no place to play. Dead Man's Curve, you must keep away. Dead Man's Curve, I can hear him say, won't come back from Dead Man's Curve. Rather than setting their fictional drag race at the site of the real Dead Man's Curve, however, Jan and Roger Christian placed it more to the east from Hollywood down the Sunset Strip, the portion of Sunset Boulevard between Hollywood and Beverly Hills, bordered by Crescent Heights Boulevard and Doheny Drive. In order to incorporate the names of locations more familiar to audiences outside of Southern California, such as the famous intersection of Hollywood and Vine, which is home to Capitol Records, and Schwab's Drugstore, where Hollywood legend proclaims the teenaged Lana Turner was discovered sipping a soda. The last verse of Dead Man's Curve was introduced by percussion effects reproducing the sounds of crashing cars, brass instruments sounding like automobile horns, and a harp glissando all of which preceded a spoken dramatic interlude which interrupted the final repetition of the chorus. Well, the last thing I remember, Doc, I started to swerve, and then I saw the jag slide into the curve. I know I'll never forget that horrible night. I guess I found out for myself that everyone was right. You don't come back from Dead Man's Curve. The song, and especially this final verse, proved eerily prophetic two years later. On April 12, 1966, 25-year-old Jan Berry crashed his Corvette Stingray into the back of a parked truck on a side street in Beverly Hills. Berry, initially thought to be dead, was cut out of his car and rushed to the nearby UCLA Medical Center, where he spent several weeks in a coma with severe injuries to the head and brain. The career of Jan and Dean was effectively over. Jan Berry did survive that ordeal and although he suffered permanent brain damage that left him partially paralyzed on his right side and impaired his speech, he eventually recovered well enough to return to the stage with former partner Dean Torrance in 1978 for a summer tour as an opening act for the Beach Boys. The legendary aspect to this story has it that Jan Berry's accident occurred on the very same dead man's curve that he and Roger Christian had in mind when they wrote the song two years earlier but the Beverly Hills side street where Barry ran his stingray into a gardener's truck was in fact south of Sunset Boulevard, a few miles away from the real location of Dead Man's Curve, but close enough to make this urban legend from the reigning king of urban legends, Snopes.com. Almost true. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Our next California urban legend, the bear on the California flag, raises the question of whether that bear on the California flag was supposed to be a bear or a pear. As the urban legend goes, somebody got it wrong as the plans went down the line, and they weren't even smoking pot back in those days. But somebody at Snopes.com definitely was, because they're the ones that dreamed up the pear story. We'll share that bit of BS first, 
then tell you who put the bear on the California flag and why. The Snopes version, and they have admitted that they're just having fun with it. Most Americans are familiar with the basics of the Texas Revolution of 1835-36, particularly the heroic stand staged by the defenders of the Alamo in San Antonio. But the story of the 1846 revolt in California is far less well known. It began on the morning of 14th June, 1846, when a small but heavily armed group of 33 American-born settlers, led by Captain Jebediah Bartlett and his two lieutenants, Albert Bosque and Emmanuel D'Anjou, approached the home of General Mariano G. Vallejo, the Mexican Comandante General of California, pounded on the door, and demanded he surrender the Sonoma Plaza fortress to them. Vallejo, an advocate of the American annexation of California, despite his nationality, told the intruders he was sympathetic to their cause. Nonetheless, they placed him under arrest and shipped him off to be held at Sutter's Fort. The rebels quickly decided to raise a new flag over Sonoma Plaza to announce their victory, resulting in hurried discussion about the composition of the banner. Most agreed it should feature something physically symbolic of California and distinctly non-Mexican, but they could not reach a consensus on what that symbol should be. Finally, Captain Bartlett, an agricultural magnate with large holdings in the Sacramento River area and an amateur horticulturist who developed the Bartlett pear, broke the deadlock by suggesting, and none too gently, that the banner include a symbol reflective of the lush agricultural regions of Northern California and the rich 400-mile-long Central Valley area. Acquiescing to the desires of their leader, the group quickly decided to honor both him and, and California agriculture by opting for a pair as the primary motif of their new flag. The group hurriedly assembled a rough prototype for their banner by borrowing a rectangular piece of light brown muslin and a four-inch strip torn from a red petticoat, sewing the red stripe, reminiscent of the ones found on the American national flag, onto the muslin, drawing a star in the upper left-hand corner to symbolize their independence and some claim to express the rebel solidarity with troops currently engaged in a war with Mexico, precipitated by a dispute over the boundary of the recently annexed state of Texas, and writing the words, California Republic in black to the right of the star. The nascent flag was then dispatched by messenger to the nearby home of William L. Todd, nephew of Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of future President Abraham Lincoln along with instructions for him to paint an image of a pear in the large, empty portion of the banner and send the flag back with the messenger. But Todd, according to this humorous Snopes account, misread the note. Whether bad handwriting, poor spelling, or smeared ink was to blame remains a subject of dispute, and instead painted a crude bear onto the muslin. The rebels hoisted their hastily prepared pennant over Sonoma Plaza despite the error, intending to remake the flag at the first opportunity. The issue became moot within a month, however, when an American squadron under Commodore John D. Sloat captured California's then-capital, Monterey, and proclaimed California to be an American territory, bringing an end to the short-lived California Republic. The territory was formally ceded to the United States by Mexico at the conclusion of the Mexican-American War in 1848, and California was admitted to the Union as the 31st state in 1850. Now for the real story. The Bear Revolt, as it's still called today, was organized by John Fremont in 1846. Some of the characters in the Snope story are correct, but any mentions of someone suggesting a pair for a flag are offered in jest. Apparently, Snopes has scattered a few of these through their work just to see if their readers are paying attention. Here's the story. 
the most notable legacy of the California Republic was the adoption of its flag as the basis of the modern state flag of California. The flag has a star, a grizzly bear, and a colored stripe with the words California Republic. The Bear Flag Monument on the Sonoma Plaza, site of the raising of the original Bear Flag, is marked by a California historical landmark. The design and creation of the original Bear Flag used in the Bear Flag Revolt is often credited to Peter Storm. The flags were made about one week before the storming of Sonoma, when William Todd and his companions claimed to have made theirs, apparently based on Mr. Storm's first flag. In 1878, at the request of the Los Angeles Evening Express, William Todd wrote an account of the bear flag used at the storming of Sonoma, perhaps the first to be raised. Soon after, his implementation became the basis for the first official state flag. The grizzly bear was chosen because it was very common at that time in California, and it represented a fierce countenance, a good choice for a group of American-born nationalists who wanted to seize political control of California from Mexico during President Polk's term in office. The Bear Revolt became their trademark, and the Bear Flag their standard. And this urban legend, there may be an ancient subterranean city of giants beneath Death Valley. The Paiute Indians who call Death Valley home have a legend about the beautiful underground kingdom of shin o According to the legend, a great Paiute chief lost his wife and decided to travel to the world of the dead to find her again. After facing many hardships, he found himself in a large, natural amphitheater and was reunited with his wife, only to lose her again in a story reminiscent of Orpheus and Eurydice. In modern times, several people have reported discovering a system of caves and catacombs under the Death Valley, and some think they could be the remains of an ancient civilization. In the 1920s, a trapper named White claimed to have discovered underground rooms and tunnels after falling through the floor of an abandoned mine. He discovered hundreds of human mummies, all wearing leather clothing, surrounded by treasure. Tom Wilson, a Paiute trapper and guide, heard this story and said his grandfather had made a similar discovery years before. Together, Wilson and White set out to find the caves again, but they were never able to find them a second time. In 1931, Dr. F. Bruce Russell, and Dr. Daniel S. Bovey claimed they stumbled upon these mysterious underground caves while trying to sink a mine shaft. Russell and Bovey claimed to find the mummified remains of three giants who were eight or nine feet tall, also wearing leather, as well as carvings and artifacts, some of which appeared Egyptian. However, they were never able to find the caves again, and shortly after their discovery, both men, according to legend, disappeared. According to a prospector named Bork Lee in his 1932 book, Death Valley Men, two men by the names of Jack and Bill also discovered these tunnels after falling through the floor of an old mine shaft. Like the others, they discovered mummies and treasures. However, like every other person who discovered these secrets, they were never able to find the tunnels again, and both disappeared trying. All these so-called discoveries, and not one shred of proof, We'll say, you just never know. Strange things do happen in Death Valley, like the family of German tourists that disappeared in 1996. The Death Valley Germans were a family of four German tourists who went missing in Death Valley National Park on July 23, 1996. After an intense search and rescue operation, no trace of the family was discovered, 
and the search was called off. In 2009, the presumed remains of the adult members of the family were discovered by hikers, although their identity has apparently never been ascertained. The family consisted of 34-year-old German architect Egbert Rimkus, his 11-year-old son, George Weber, Egbert's 27-year-old girlfriend, Cornelia Meyer, and her 4-year-old son, Max Meyer, all of whom hailed from Dresden, Germany. The group had arrived in the United States in early July, originally arriving in Los Angeles before visiting Las Vegas, where they stayed at the Treasure Island Hotel and Casino. Wanting more adventure on their vacation, the family traveled to Death Valley on July 22nd, where they bought a booklet from the Furnace Creek Visitor Center and spent their first night camping out in a canyon near Telescope Peak. The next day, the group continued to travel to various visitor sites, with Cornelia signing the names of all the family members on a visitor's log at an abandoned mining camp and stopping at the geologist's cabin in Warm Springs Canyon. The family had booked airplane seats to return to Germany on July 29th, but never arrived. Rimkus's ex-wife, Heinke Weber, became concerned when her ex-husband and son never returned from their vacation, and she began to inquire about their whereabouts. On July 31st, the German travel agency, who had arranged the vacation, contacted the rental car agency from which the family had rented their car, but after not getting adequate responses, reported the family missing to Interpol. On October 21st, the family's green Plymouth Voyager rental car was discovered in an extremely remote part of the park known as Anvil Canyon by a helicopter search pilot. Subsequent inspection found the car had been driven for at least 200 miles, and three of the tires were flat. Over 200 search and rescue workers performed an extensive search of the area near the van, though it yielded no clues to the whereabouts of the family besides a single beer bottle that was discovered under a bush over a mile away from the stranded van. On October 26th, authorities called off the search for the missing tourist. On November 12th, 2009, Les Walker and Tom Mayhood, a pair of hikers and off-duty search and rescuers searching for traces of the family, discovered the skeletal remains of two adults, one male and the other female, with identification belonging to the missing tourists near the bodies. Though no DNA evidence was recovered from the bones, authorities claimed they were fairly certain that the bones belonged to the missing Germans. The remains of the children were never found. Then there's this urban legend that skinwalkers are out hunting in Joshua Tree National Park. Navajo Indians have hidden the existence of Yi Naglushi, or he who walks on all fours, until a century ago. These not-quite-human entities were shamans or medicine people who used their power to hurt others. Now they take the forms of coyotes, owls, wolves, or foxes to hunt the living at Joshua Tree National Park. Terrorized campers claim to hearing the cries of wildlife or injured children before they feel the claws and teeth sinking into them. Unfortunately, not everyone is lucky to survive these attacks. That's why many people were found dead in that national park. There's also a growing list of missing people, especially in the parts in Riverside County. Stay safe and only travel around Joshua Tree National Park in larger numbers, though that may not save you once a skinwalker has its eyes on you. That found in Flickr by Mark Kraples. Which reminds me, if you want to catch a great podcast about skinwalkers, tune in to Astonishing Legends. They love researching and analyzing amazing stories, just like we do here at 1001 Heroes. 
and their topics run the gamut from supernatural to mysterious places, people, and historical events. The co-hosts, Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess, have an interesting style that gets you hooked and captivates your imagination. My two favorite episodes that come to mind are Skinwalker Ranch and Kincaid's Cave in the Grand Canyon. Plus, we've overlapped a few times on Amelia Earhart. They do a good job of trying to give you all the facts and walking the line between skepticism and belief. And they do a good job with guest interviews, especially people who have experienced paranormal phenomena, as they just did in a recent series of episodes on Resurrection Mary. They use a team of researchers they call the Astonishing Legends Corps, and they go deep, sometimes taking two or three two-hour episodes to cover a story, but always keeping you interested in the story. Since they first launched in 2014, they've logged over 30 million downloads, so they've got a lot of fans. To find them, you can visit Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast provider, and search for Astonishing Legends. Again, that's Astonishing Legends. Or just visit AstonishingLegends.com for more information. Give them a try. You'll enjoy the show. Our next urban legend, the ghost of a disappointed lover haunts the Toys R Us store in Sunnyvale, California. Some recent events have happened with Toys R Us, so that store may not still be there. But there's always the site. Enter the Play-Doh aisle at your own risk, this article says. Browse the children's books with caution. And don't even ask to go upstairs where the toys are stacked. The Toys R Us in Sunnyvale is haunted by a man named Johnson, employees and psychics say. I don't believe in ghosts, says Putt-Putt O'Brien, who has spent 18 years stacking toys at the store. But you feel a breeze behind you. Someone calls your name and there's nobody there. Funny things happen here that you can't explain. Rag dolls and toy trucks leap off shelves. Balls bounce down the aisles. Children's books fall out of racks. Baby swings move on their own. The folks at Toys R Us say they've tried to explain it logically, but can't. Many people have experiences, not just one or two of us, Putt-Putt said. He's like Casper. Nothing he does ever hurts anybody. Others have taken notice, too. Newspapers have written about him. The Toy Store has been featured on televisions That's Incredible and other shows. A Hollywood scriptwriter for the movie Toys spent two nights inside doing research. Psychic Sylvia Brown held a seance there in 1978 and has been back a dozen times, the article reads. The psychic Brown said that Johnson told her he was a preacher and ranch hand in the 1880s on the Murphy family farm where the toy store sits today. He spoke with a mild Swedish accent and his first name was John, Jan or Johan. Ten of sixteen people assembled there for the seance said they heard a high buzzing noise when Brown was supposedly listening to the guest. Brown said the ghost told her he'd been in love with Murphy's daughter Elizabeth, who ran off with an East Coast lawyer. Old news clippings say Johnson accidentally hacked his leg with an axe while carelessly chopping down trees. Another story said Johnson was found dead in the orchard with an axe wound in his neck. Both stories say he bled to death. O'Brien said she saw Johnson once, a young man in his 20s or 30s, wearing knickers, a white long sleeve work shirt, and a gray tweed snap-brim cap, walked past her. Another time she heard the sound of galloping horses. Johan used to exercise the horses, O'Brien said. Now he apparently gets his exercise playing with the staff. 
There was the time when men were waxing the floor, for instance, and a teddy bear kept appearing in each aisle as they moved their equipment through the store. There's the overwhelming sweet smell of garden flowers that haunts aisle 15C, next to the Mickey Mouse dolls and the Batman toothbrush sets. So now the obvious question. Is it all just a desperate sales gimmick? It's very good publicity for us, said store director Stephanie Lewis, but I personally don't believe in it. But even if Lewis doesn't believe it, others do. Last week we had to chase three or four teenagers away, she said. They were sitting out front at 4 a.m. with a Ouija board, trying to conjure up the ghost. Once a week someone comes in here asking about it. Teenagers beg us to let them spend the night on the floor. I have employees who will not go into the women's bathroom alone, Lewis said. That's because Johnson follows them in there and turns on the water faucets, she said. The last thing they want to see in the ladies' bathroom is Johnson. Longtime employees say Johnson has also pulled pranks on contractors who come to do short-term jobs. They see a toy leap from a shelf and refuse to come back. O'Brien believes Johnson lives upstairs in a breezy, cool corner. The pranks he pulls upstairs are also harmless, she said, but it's spookier because one is usually alone. When I go up there, I say, Johan, I'm only here to work. So if the place is haunted, why stick around? It's a good ghost, said Lisa, another employee, who didn't give her last name. It's fun working here. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And there's one urban legend that's persisted for a while in Hollywood, and that's that the Poltergeist film series is cursed and has seen several strange deaths occur among its cast members. What is seen as an unusually large number of deaths have occurred among the former cast members of the Poltergeist trilogy. This occurrence has given rise to the rumor that productions were in some way cursed due to the nature of the films themselves, as if the evil spirits conjured in the make-believe world of the cinema have since reached out into the real world to claim what they might see as their rightful victims. A poltergeist in folklore is a noisy and destructive, but usually mischievous, not malicious, ghost held to be responsible for unexplained noises and movement of objects within a home. And I'm going to step away from the story for just a moment to vouch for that. I lived in one of those homes for about three years, but that's another story for another time. One hypothesis is that poltergeists are drawn to homes in which there are prepubescent children, especially girls, Three horror films based on this form of lore comprise the Poltergeist trilogy. All three stories deal with the lives of a fictional family called the Freelings, who have had the bad luck to take up residence in homes inhabited by spirits intent upon kidnapping their children or sending their kids to live in similar places. Though coincidence is a much more likely explanation than a curse, there have been four deaths among the cast of this set of films. Dominique Dunn, who played Dana Freeling, Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, Will Sampson, who played Taylor, a good spirit, and Julian Beck, who played Kane, an evil spirit. Though two of the deaths were foreseeable, even expected, two others were not. It's the combination of the two unexpected deaths that lies at the heart of every rumor about a poltergeist curse. 
Dominique Dunn, the 22-year-old actress who played big sister Dana Freeling in the first Poltergeist film, released in June of 1982, died on November 4, 1982, at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, four days after her boyfriend choked her into a coma from which she never awoke. Weeks earlier, Dunn had ended her abusive live-in relationship with Los Angeles chef John Sweeney, but on the night of October 30, 1982, he dropped by their former shared residence to plead with her to take him back. The conversation didn't go as he had hoped, and the encounter ended with him strangling her for what was later determined to be four to six minutes, then leaving her for dead in the driveway. Sweeney was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and he was sentenced in November of 1983, and released in 86 after serving only three years, eight months of a six-and-a-half-year sentence. His short sentence and early release remain the subjects of controversy. Heather O'Rourke, the child actress who played Carol Ann Freeling throughout the Poltergeist series, starting when she was six years old, unexpectedly passed away at the age of 12 when she died of septic shock on February 1, 1988, at the Children's Hospital in San Diego. What had been thought to be a bout of ordinary flu launched her into cardiac arrest during the drive to the local hospital as bacterial toxins set loose by a bowel obstruction made their way into her bloodstream. Her heart was successfully restarted and she was flown by helicopter to a much larger children's hospital where she underwent an operation to remove the obstruction. The toxins rampaging through her system proved too much though and she died on the operating table. The circumstances surrounding her passing rendered her death even more of a shock than it otherwise would have been as she went overnight from a little girl who had the flu to a dead little girl who expired during a desperate operation to save her life. It's hard enough to accept that a child can die of an illness, let alone a healthy-looking youngster that no one knew anything was wrong with. O'Rourke had appeared in all three Poltergeist movies. Poltergeist 3 had yet to be released at the time of her death, leading to rumors that she had expired during the shooting and a double was used to complete the picture in her place. O'Rourke's family and agents said at the time of her death, her scenes for Poltergeist 3 had been completed several months earlier, but writer-director Gary Sherman has maintained filming of Poltergeist 3 had not yet finished when O'Rourke died, necessitating script changes to complete the film in her absence. The other two deaths connected with Poltergeist were of seasoned actors well into their careers, both suffering from serious illnesses that would in time take their lives. Because their deaths were not unexpected, only rarely is either one mentioned in connection with the Poltergeist curse. It should also be mentioned that Oliver Robbins, the child actor who played their character's brother Robbie Freeling in the first two films, is still alive, and no child actor from the Poltergeist series was killed in a car crash or died just after Poltergeist II was completed. It should also be noted that Craig T. Nelson, who played Steve Freeling, and Joe Beth Williams, who played Diane Freeling, and Tom Skerritt, who played Bruce Gardner, are all alive and doing well at last check. Thanks for joining us for part one of Urban Legends 7, California, Stranger Than Fiction. There are so many urban legends from the land of fruits and nuts that we couldn't tell them all in one episode, and besides, we didn't want to scare you too badly. Next week, we cover the very scary Turnbull Canyon, the giants of the Santa Lucia Mountains, Charman, the urban legend of axe murders on the Queen Mary, deaths at Disneyland, the lizard people, Stowe Lake, Bodie Canyon, suicide jumping at the Hollywood sign, the Hotel Cecil, and much more. You won't want to miss it. Some 1001 updates. We're doing well. 
Lots of folks coming aboard as subscribers. This might have something to do with the prize drawing we're doing for all 1001 show subscribers on June 15th. We're giving away a Kindle White e-reader. So if you're listening to this, there's probably still time to get in. June 15th is the deadline. Just look for our subscriber link in the show notes. Our subscribers at $2.99 a month are a huge help to this show. 1001 Classic Short Stories did very well with the Sherlock Holmes story, Adventure of the Devil's Foot. So look for more Sherlock Holmes mysteries in the future. A big thanks for the recent Apple iTunes reviews, which have been rolling in for both 1001 Heroes and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Some recent examples, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, Show is Good by Mr. Oggs, five stars, excellent reader, Great Stories by Cahaba Baum, five stars. This guy is great. He has the perfect voice for telling classic stories. And Great Show by Mark and Val, five stars. My very favorite podcast, Keep Them Coming. And Wonderful, From Now You Listen, rating five stars. Great intro music, sound effects, and expert storytelling. And over at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, this show, we've got Awesome podcast by William Browning, five stars. Well narrated and intensely interesting. And all shows by 3G Jerry G. Rating, five stars. A great podcast. For history buffs, this is a great source, not only for entertainment, but education. You find out about topics and subjects which you learn more interesting facts about. A must-go to listen. And great by Thad67. Rating, five stars. Great podcast. Love listening to all the shows. And another one, great, this time with an exclamation mark, by Cactus. Rating, five stars. Great, exclamation mark, great, exclamation mark. I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to send us these reviews. They're greatly appreciated. And thanks for being such good fans. Thank you for joining us. Share our show with a friend. That's how we grow. And we'll see you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. with part two of Urban Legends, California. <laughs>